I'll be reading out of the King James Version. We're going to be reading in Proverbs, 16th chapter, 18 through 19. Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Better it is to be of an humble spirit with the lowly than to, to divide the spoils with the proud. You may be seated. Well, I'm certainly delighted to be with you today. Thank you for your attendance with us this morning. All the visitors that we have, we're always delighted to have you. You're always a very important guest among us, and we're very thankful for your presence and for the membership here. So supportive. I'm very grateful. Look forward to being with you again tonight at 6 o'clock, where we're studying from God's Word once again and worshiping Him in His prescribed way, the way we read about in the pages of the New Testament. It's a wonderful way to start the new year, to study God's Word, to worship Him in this very fine way. Thank you for the singing today, Lynn, beautiful singing, for your participation in it, for the very fine prayers that have been offered. I want to thank you for the scripture reading, for the men who led us in our worship today. I'm very appreciative of what you've done and the very fine way that you do it. One of the elements that will keep us from sinning is to understand the seeds of sin and its very beginning as it's planted in our heart and planted in our mind. All kinds of different seeds begin to germinate in our heart, and the end result of that is that we're guilty of sin. And one of those seeds that I'd like to identify today, if we talk about a new year and a way to begin it in the right way, is the sin of pride and how to overcome it. If I can look at that seed and recognize it, then I can get it out of my heart and get it out of my mind, and I won't be guilty of it. And as we will study today, I think it's something that we all need. We all need to understand what pride is and how to eliminate it from our life. I was reading uh, about the life of Cassius Clay. This was a number of years ago, and I'd read this story, and then I want to follow it up with a true incident in my life, and that is that uh, Cassius Clay was traveling on a commercial airline, and it's in the book about his life. later changed his name to Muhammad Ali, and uh, they were getting ready to take off, and stewardess came up to him and said, Sir, would you please bulk your seatbelt? And he said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And she said, Superman don't need no plane. Please buckle your seatbelt. Well, I read that, and I thought that was a pretty humorous thing. I was preaching on WHBQ radio in Memphis, Tennessee, and Muhammad Ali was there. When I'd finished the radio program, I uh, was working my way through the crowd because I wanted to meet Muhammad Ali, heavyweight champion of the world. And I was going to ask him about that. But I never got close enough to him, and so I can't really, didn't really get a chance to ask him. I wish I had, and he gave me some kind of response to that. But to, the, to me, that's arrogance and pride. And maybe he was a man that just really 
is the epitome of arrogance and pride. But if we're not careful, we'll have that kind of attitude about ourselves. We think we're Superman. And we don't think we need to buckle our seatbelt. Because it's all about us. Perhaps what he said about himself, we think about ourselves. And so to help identify the seed before it actually becomes a sin. Let's study the matter of pride today. And there are really three things that I want to talk about. I want to define what we mean by pride. I think it's very important to avoid any ambiguity that we decide just exactly what we're talking about here. So we're going to define it. And then another very important point always for me, and I'm sure for you, is that I want to know what the Lord feels about this. Uh, How does he see it? It's one thing for me to see it my way, but the more important thing is to see it God's way. So I really want to know what God has to say about this matter. And, And then I'd like to look at a case study. I'd like to look at a person that was filled with pride and see what happened to him and what the outcome was. And surely by doing that, then I'm way down the line toward understanding what pride is, and when I see it rear its ugly head, I'm well prepared to eliminate it from my life so that that seed does not get a spot in my heart to germinate and to grow and my life be filled with a life of pride. First thing I want to talk about is the fact of what pride is. There is a good sense in the matter of pride. You might drive down the road and a person sees a yard that's well-kept and groomed and neat, and somebody say, well, that person takes a lot of pride in their yard. Or you might go to someone's house, and it's very neatly painted, and everything's neatly put in its place, and it's a very nice, neat house, and somebody might say, well, that person takes a lot of pride in their house. And in a, a sense, I guess that's a good sense of the word pride, the kind of pride where a person is very studious or very meticulous or, or very industrious or, or very... Uh, you know, it refuses to be negligent in the matter, is very concerned about how things are going and wants to do things properly. And if we use it in that sense, I think it's a good way to use the word pride. But that's really not what we're talking about today. What we're talking about is another kind of attitude that we have about ourselves, an attitude where we're more concerned about being served and more concerned about being the center of things than anyone else. And I thought of this passage in Philippians chapter 2. I think it's a good passage to begin with as we consider the matter of pride. That humility really is the antithesis of pride. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul almost in eulogy type fashion talks about the life of the Lord. And there he says in verse 3, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who thought he was in the form, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Verse 7. I read for you this morning, Philippians 2. I started at verse 3 and read on down through verse 7, and I'm trying to see what pride is all about. And I see that the very antithesis of pride, or the opposite of pride, is this element of humility which the Lord so perfectly bespeaks 
the Lord, though he had the greatness and glory of heaven, took upon himself the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men. And what a beautiful explanation Paul gives in Philippians chapter 2 of the life of the Lord. How perfect he was in so many, many ways. But he took the form of a servant. And in doing so, he humbled himself. This is the antithesis of pride. By understanding what it is not, we can surely understand better what it is. Jesus was the servant of all. A beautiful passage along that line that helps me understand what Jesus was like and how he viewed himself is found in Matthew chapter 20. And verse 28 is the passage that I have in mind. And and it's one that you may want to mark because it does describe for us so much of the life of the Lord. Matthew twenty twenty eight, Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, that's humility. He's thinking of others. The passage, again, is Matthew 20. The verse is verse 28. And though there are many passages we could go to, I think that really hits the nail on the head so to speak, about Jesus' attitude toward himself and what we're talking about today. It was not a matter of trying to elevate himself. It was more of a matter of serving others. In fact, he came, took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man. He humbled himself. Humility is the antithesis of pride. But as we can soon see, pride... um, It's something that begins to enter into our heart and in our mind because we desire to be served. Jesus was the one who came to serve others, not to be served. Matthew 20, 28. But we begin to think about ourselves as wanting the attention. I'm the person that deserves the attention. Nobody's paying attention to me. I deserve it. Pride is beginning to well up in my heart. I'm trying to put myself above others rather than think about others. Or it may manifest itself in this way. You know, that person's getting all the attention and I'm not getting the attention. And because that person's getting the attention, I'm the one really that deserves the attention. People need to be coming to me. You see, I begin to let that seed germinate in my heart and it begins to manifest itself and well itself up. They didn't pay any attention to my thought. I think my thought should have been considered more highly than the other. They didn't place enough attention on what I had to say. They didn't place enough attention on what uh, I wanted to do. And so now I'm beginning to elevate my thoughts and my thinking higher than anyone else. You know what? Nobody's goose-stepping to my opinion here. My opinion is worthy of that. Everybody needs to bow down and listen to me and my opinion. That deserves to be the standard for everybody else because it's my opinion. You see, I'm beginning to elevate myself above others. Pride is welling up in my heart and welling up in my mind. And the seed now is germinating and it's beginning to grow. And I'm trying to convince myself I'm more important than the other. 
You see, humility is the antithesis to pride. Jesus came to serve. But I began to well up in my heart and my mind this attitude, I'm the more important one. I'm the center of attention here. People need to be listening to me and doing what I say. And if they're not, then I'm hurt by it. And I'm upset by it. It's pride. We're defining what it is. And we're seeing that it's a central focus on myself. A haughty look and a proud heart and the plowing of the wicked is sin. Proverbs 21 and verse 4. Let us be clear as to what it is. Pride is sin. Pride is a self-centered attitude I have about myself where I begin to elevate myself above other people. I'm not thinking about you and others. Oh, no. I'm thinking about me because I've got the seed of pride in my heart. And I'm beginning to look more and more at myself than I am somebody else. That's not the way it was with Christ. Well, I've got a pretty good idea as to what it is. I think now's the time for me to think more about how God feels about it. And if you turn to the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 6, I think you're going to find a pretty good description of how God feels about the matter. And he says in Proverbs 6.16, a Bible passage we all need to mark. Proverbs 6 and 16, going on through verse 19. There the wise man said, there are six things that the Lord hates. Seven things that are an abomination to him. Now, there are a couple of things that stick out in my mind about this passage that I want to make mention of before I go further. Notice that in my translation, I suppose it's that way in your translation as well, that you have the word Lord there, but it's in all capital letters. In my translation, English Standard Version, the word Lord is in all capital letters, and you have a capital L and a little bit smaller capital O, capital R, capital D. But it's in all caps. And the reason these English translators translate it that way and put it in our English text that way is because they're trying to convey to the reader, this is the covenant word for God. This is the special word. American Standard Version, 1901, came out with and very consistently used the word Jehovah for that particular word that's used in the text. And the word Jehovah comes up quite a bit in the American Standard Version. You'll find it also in the King James Version. I suppose the American Standard were more consistent in how that they translated the text Jehovah. But really, it's sort of a hybrid word, Jehovah. Because when the Hebrews would read this special word, they'd always insert the name Lord or the name Word. The, the word Lord in that place. Now, English translators came along and they said, we've got to have a special word here that kind of conveys this special covenant name for God. And so they come up with the, the word Jehovah, which is a fine word, but you need to understand it's more of a transliterated word, a more of a hybrid word than the original word. And so it's a good word to use. Here, these English Standard Version translators use the word Lord, and they're saying, The Lord has a special covenant relationship with us as his people. There's a special relationship going on here. He uses the covenant name. There are six things that the Lord hates. 
our Lord God Almighty, the one that we're in covenant relationship with. Now, he hates six things here. Does that mean, well, he tolerates it? No. Uh, did he use the word, uh, there are a couple of things now that God just doesn't like? No. He hates them. Seven things are an abomination. You see them in Proverbs chapter 6, and I'm started at verse 16. I'm trying to work my way through this brief paragraph, which is kind of rare for the book of Proverbs that you have so much context in one particular section. Basically, the Proverbs are very short, pithy-type statements that are kind of joined together. Uh, there's not much context to them. But here there's a little context, and the wise men are saying, there are seven things you better watch out for. And the first thing that he says is, here are haughty eyes, proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who believes, who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Verse 19. Now I would say that each one of these particular seven things deserves a sermon within themselves. But I'm looking at that first one, Proverbs 6 and 17. Haughty eyes, God hates that. A proud look, God hates that. In fact, as you go through this particular paragraph, you can kind of see how each one builds on the other. The haughty eyes, a lying tongue. It sort of go together, and it carries itself a little further with hands that shed innocent blood and a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness. They kind of build on each other and make a bigger problem, and one who sows discord among brothers. Then if you take the last one, the one who sows discord among brothers, and join that with the first one, verse 17, a proud look, you're going to see how that they're so connected with each other. And I tell you, brethren, every time that you have a problem with a group of people, a congregation of God's people, Every time you have discord among God's people, if you will look back, you're going to find a proud look somewhere causing the problem. And that's why God hates it. He hates this particular matter because it's a terrible sin. I might even say it was the first sin. You turn with me to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1, and um, an interesting passage is found for us in verse 20 21. Here's one of the prison epistles that I spoke about earlier today, uh, and we will in our Bible classes get to this wonderful book. It's sometimes called the Queen of the Epistles. But if you'll notice in Ephesians 1 20 and 21, how it describes those angelic beings that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, verse 20, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He's probably referring to the angelic beings there. I think most expositors of the Bible who have really delved into this particular matter seem to say that because of the wording, there's a type of ranking among the angels of glory and how that they were created by God and serve Him. And 
And he refers to them in various ways such as this, as principalities and powers and might and dominion. If you turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, a very interesting passage occurs in this particular matter at about verse 21, and I'll read uh, the verse, though I love to go to 1 Peter 3.21 for other reasons, but today I'm looking more at its context when it talks about these angels especially in the matter of grouping them and ranking them. And he says in 1 Peter 3.21, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities and powers having been subjected to him. So he pretty well identifies who the principalities and powers are for us in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 22, that he's talking about the angels and he's talking about a certain ranking of those angels which God had created, and he tells us that Christ has authority over all of them. But it tells us that there was some kind of a problem that resulted in this particular matter, as you go to 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4, because by 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 4, he's telling us about the surety of the judgment to come. And as he begins to discuss about that, he says in verse 4, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. And he goes on and goes on and ultimately he says, now if God did not fail to condemn them, he's not going to fail to condemn you if you continue to reject him and his word. Somehow, some way, there was something about this ranking, something about this creation of God, that God cast some of them out of heaven. An interesting passage out of the book of Jude comes to us in verse 6. The one, one of the one-chapter books of the Bible. There are five of them all together. And he says in Jude, verse 6, And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under glory, under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Evidently, There was something that took place there with regard to the angels and their ranking and the authority that God gave them that some of them did not stay within that ranking or that authority and that they moved out of the authority which God had given them and in turn condemned them. You have these passages, reference having made to that 2 Peter 2 and 4 and Jude verse 6. There's an interesting verse in 1 Timothy chapter 3. When Paul talks about the qualification of elders there, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, he comes down to this matter about verse 6, and he says, now here's a a novice who should not be selected as an elder. Shouldn't be selected as an elder, and here's the reason why. He must not be a recent convert, as far as an elder is concerned, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. And what he seems to be conveying is the idea that a young individual, a convert to Christ, really is not a qualified man to be an elder because he may succumb to the same sin as the devil and be filled with pride and conceit. 
It may be the very first sin. It may be the one and only sin ever in heaven where angels who would not be satisfied with the proper position God gave them, Jude verse 6, but were cast out with their leader who was filled with pride. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 6. That's why God hates it. I believe you got a real difficult issue when your heart's filled with pride. Because God hates a proud look. He hates that particular matter. First sin on earth for sure. Genesis chapter 3, God created man, chapter 2. Places him in a garden, creates a garden eastward into Eden. There he puts the man whom he had formed. As he does, he says, you may eat of all the trees which are in the garden, but the tree which is in the midst of the garden you shall not eat. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And what happens in chapter 3? Satan comes and beguiles Eve. He says, you see this fruit? Isn't this beautiful fruit? He says, yeah, but God said we shall not eat of that fruit, for in the day that we eat, we will die. And Satan contradicts the word of God. He says, you will not surely die. God knows that when you eat, you'll be like God. And she's tempted. And she eats the fruit which God told her not to eat, and she gives to her husband. And he eats the fruit God told them not to eat. Now, why did they eat it? They didn't eat it because they were hungry. They ate it because they wanted to be like God. They wanted to elevate themselves from where they were. The seed of pride was in their heart, and they were beginning, it was beginning to grow, and they wanted to be more like God. The first sin on earth is a result of the sin of pride. First sin we see in the church of the Lord was a result of pride. Acts chapter 5, you have Grecian widows who are being neglected in the daily administration of the, of the affairs of the church. By that, it simply means the needs and necessities, daily necessities of life, they were being neglected in the food that they needed. They were poor. They had left their homes, and now they were living in, in Jerusalem. And Acts chapter 5 tells us about the need that was arising. The Jewish Christians who lived in Jerusalem, they were taking precedence over these particular matters. This is actually Acts chapter 6. And in doing so, they in turn were uh, receiving more. And what was the problem there other than pride? We're preferentially giving to this group rather than that group because that group here has always lived in Jerusalem and they get more treatment and we value them more than we value the other, the sin of pride. Prior to that in Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias and Sapphira bring a portion of the sale of their land, lay it at the apostles' feet and lie about the matter, say this whole thing. Now why they did that, I don't know, unless as you go back up into Acts chapter 4 and 37, and there Joseph, who's also known as Barnabas, 
a Levite, a native of Cyprus, verse 37, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Maybe there was some pats on the back that he received. Maybe there was some jubilation and uh, respect that he received from that act. I don't know. I take it that his motive was pure and that the need was there, and he saw a way he could help satisfy the need, and he did it. But Ananias and Sapphira were a little different. Ananias and Sapphira, they saw that perhaps, and they had a field, and they took the price of it, and they kept part of it back. But then they took the money, portion of it, laid it at the apostles' feet, and here's the whole thing. And, and the apostle Peter says, why have you lied to God over this matter? Why have you lied? It's a sin of pride. And I think if I look at this particular matter over and over again, I, I think I can see why God hates pride. And that's really what I'm trying to do right now and I, in my study. I'm trying to understand how does God feel about this thing. And I'm seeing now why God hates this kind of pride because it leads to deception. It leads to uh, negligence of others. It, it leads to a self-aggrandizement of myself over others the sin of pride is a very serious sin. It could be the very first sin in heaven, one and only sin, if I'm right about my assessment on that. And then the first sin on earth, I know that. Sin worked its way into the earth. Satan got it in there by Adam and Eve. First sin in the church, I know that because of the problem of Ananias and Sapphira. And I would say it's the first sin in my heart and your heart. Because we want to be the center of attention. We want to be the person that everybody looks to. We want to be the kind of person that elevates themselves over others and does not concern themselves by serving others. James 1 and 14. Each man is tempted when he is pulled away by his own desires. So, when I am tempted to elevate myself and I'm concerned about myself more than I'm concerned about others. And I'm concerned about my view and my opinion and my position. And I elevate it higher than other people. I need to be on my guard because the sin of pride is growing in my heart and I need to eliminate it. But I told you not only we want to define pride and we want to see how God feels about pride, but I'd like to see a case study of pride at work. And I don't think there's a better case study that we could find in the pages of the Bible and what it did to a man's life than over in the Old Testament book of Daniel and the great king Nebuchadnezzar. And I'll turn to that particular passage and just barely, very briefly read a passage or two of what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. He was a great king. Uh, God, in many ways, used Nebuchadnezzar uh, to fulfill his own work and purpose among his people. But Nebuchadnezzar was a kind of man that was filled with a lot of pride. And when you look at Daniel chapter 4, you see what it did to him. And I'd like to do that just for a brief moment. I'm in Daniel 4, 28 through 37. This is a very interesting passage out of God's Word. I wish I knew more about it. But what is given to me, I do know. And I do understand that first, there is this narration 
how a man was filled with pride. And he went out upon the porch and he looked over his kingdom. And the Babylonian empire was a vast empire, a powerful empire. And if you'll notice how he says this, and all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of a royal palace of Babylon. The king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? Can you see the element of pride that's welled up in this particular man as he surveys his domain and his tremendous empires that all, I did all of this. It's for my, me and my majesty. And right then and there, a voice from heaven told him what was going to happen. I call this portion of the paragraph the narration. Because it does tell us what the situation is taking place. And God tells him, the kingdom has departed from you. Verse 32. And you shall be driven from among men. And your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you. Until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And I'm saying, brethren, we ought never forget that. God rules in the kingdoms of men today. It took a hard lesson for Nebuchadnezzar to learn that. And sometimes we forget it as God's people. Until we know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will We're all in the sovereign hands of God Almighty. And even though we may have our rulers and our dictators and our leaders and whatever you want to call them, whatever name you choose to give them, God still rules in the kingdoms of men. Isaiah learned that, Isaiah chapter 6. Uzzah was dead, but God still lives. Chapter 6, verse 1. That's the narration. Then you actually come to this portion which I call the declaration. Uh, the very thing that he said was going to happen did happen to Nebuchadnezzar. One of the greatest king, the, great, the str- most powerful man in the world at the time, he was driven from among men, a very exclusive, uh, elusive type of life he began to live. He sort of loses his mind. He eats grass like an ox. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. And it really happened to him. Now, modern scholars want to look at this and they try to discount it and this, that, and the other and try to say it was this way and it was that way. But it actually happened the way God said it happened. And then he realizes, you know, I was really wrong. See, I call that the declaration. Blessed is the Most High, Nebuchadnezzar says in verse 34. And at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, that's his declaring of his matter about himself, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. He realizes the error of his way. This is what pride will do to us. Pride will well up in our hearts and make us think that we're the most important one, that we're the one that's the center of attention, and the world simply revolves around us when really we should realize that God is the one that deserves all the praise and all the glory, and that we should humble ourselves before him and realize that he's got the whole world in his hands. Then there's another little portion of the paragraph that I call the conclusion. He's humbled by the experience. 
This is what pride did to a man. Particularly verse 37, but I'll read verse 36 as well. Daniel 4 and 36. At the same time my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Nebuchadnezzar learned it, and I need to learn it. I need to learn not to look upon myself as being the most important individual that there is, but merely as a servant of Jesus Christ. And whenever that seed begins to germinate in my heart, I need to quench it and rip it out so that I am not guilty of the sin of pride, thinking I'm the most important person. I think... Peter's statement in 1 Peter chapter 5, 6, and 7 is something that needs to be etched in the heart of every child of God. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties, that means worries, but all your worries on him because he cares for you. Why can't we learn that? Why can't we learn to humble ourselves before God? Don't worry about being great. If God wants you to be great, he'll make you great. You don't have to worry about being great. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. He'll use you in his service and in his kingdom in the proper way, which best brings about his glory and the salvation of others. Cast all your care, cast all your anxieties, put all your worries on God because he cares for you, he loves you, and wants the best for you. When the night seems so dark and trouble seems so close at hand, put your care and your anxieties upon God for he, he loves you and cares for you. The individual who refuses to obey the word of God is living a life of pride. Come off that pedestal of pride. Be obedient to the will of God. For some of you, that may mean repenting of sin and being baptized into Christ. If you've never done that, you need to do it. You need to repent of your sins. You need to become a member of the New Testament church, the one you read about in the Bible, by confessing your faith in Christ and repenting of sin, being immersed in water for the remission of sins. Humble yourself enough to do it. Somebody comes along and says, well, I don't want to do that. You see that pride coming out in an individual? Humble yourself. Jesus was going through the town. The man of short stature was up in a sycamore tree. He said, Zacchaeus, come down, for I'm going to your house today. That's what God is saying to each one of us. Come down. Come down off of that pedestal of pride and arrogance and self-centeredness. Come down and humble yourself before God. And do the will of God. Obey the will of God. Be obedient to him by obeying the gospel of Jesus Christ. And for some of us, that may mean repenting of our sins, Galatians 6 and 1. Being born like his son, Jesus, who came and humbled himself and took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. 
In that regard, we fail and we repent and we start all over again. And we recognize the pride again in our heart. Oh, I'm not going to repent. No, I'm not going to repent. I don't need to. Oh, yes, you do. You need to repent. Sometimes that repentance merely means getting down on our knees before God and begging God to forgive us. Forgive me, Lord, for I'm a sinner. Sometimes I brought reproach upon the church and upon others, and it may require confession publicly to be made. I need to stand before others and say, look, I've been guilty and I repent. Get rid of the pride and do it now. Won't you come? While together we stand and while we sing.